Hello and welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, the healthcare podcast where we talk everything value-based care with the top experts in the field. Hi, everyone. We at Day Health Strategies are so thrilled to welcome you to our podcast. I'm Max Blumenthal, and it is my privilege to introduce our host, Sarah Bliss Matusik, Senior Consultant at Day Health Strategies. Sarah? Thanks so much, Max, and welcome again to all you listening out there, and thanks for joining us. For those of you not familiar with Day Health Strategies, we are a healthcare consulting firm out of the Boston area in Massachusetts, specializing in bringing healthcare transformation expertise and strategy to providers, insurers, and government agencies. So, Sarah, I'm so excited to get this podcast started. What can our listeners expect from Unlocking Accountable Care? Me too. We're really thrilled to be here. So anyone working in healthcare in the U.S. knows that the field is undergoing some pretty significant changes, and these are to address one major problem, that we pay for more for healthcare than any other country in the world, but with all that money spent, we actually aren't meeting quality and health outcomes expectations. So. Mm. To deal with this issue, a group called the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, or IHI, which is right here in Boston, they came up with this triple aim uh, to inform healthcare reform and a bunch of other things, really. And the three goals in the triple aim are one, to improve patient experience, two, to improve the health of the population, and three, to reduce per capita costs. So this podcast mini-series is really just going to focus on one of the many different strategies working to achieve that triple aim, um, and it's the promotion of value-based care through accountable care organizations. I've been hearing a lot about value-based care and especially accountable care organizations, or as they're called, ACOs. They seem like a hot topic right now. Why are they something that people in healthcare need to know about? So let's kind of take a step back and define value-based care first, because we and others sometimes throw that term around without making sure everyone really knows what it means. So valuable care is considered any care that gets the best outcomes for the lowest cost. Basically, it's measuring health outcomes against the cost of delivering those outcomes. I like to think of value-based care as the opposite of volume-based care, which is paying some fee for a particular service. So in value-based care, hospitals or physicians get paid based on outcomes or how well their patients do and not based on how many services they provide. So now that we've gone through what value-based care is, let's talk for a minute about what's happening with it because that's the basis for this podcast. So essentially moving to value-based care has been a central part of a lot of recent state and national health reform efforts. So one big example of this is the formation of accountable care organizations, or ACOs. And ACOs, as we'll get much deeper into, are really just partnerships between a group of providers and sometimes insurers who take on financial and medical responsibility for some group of patients. So specific models of ACOs differ, but they typically work with some fixed per member per month payment to provide all of the care a patient needs. And the idea is that paying providers based on how healthy their patients are rather than how many things they do to them will actually save money and improve health in the long run. So I realize I'm oversimplifying this, but we have plenty of time to get into all the different nuances later. That sounds really interesting, Sarah. And I can't wait to dig more deeply into this with all the interviews we'll have in later episodes. But how specifically will this podcast examine the potential of value-based care in the real world? 
So the primary focus for this podcast will be on Massachusetts, uh, where we are knee-deep in a new Medicaid model that includes ACOs. And over the next several episodes, we're going to talk through what challenges and successes these Medicaid ACOs are facing right here in Massachusetts and what critical lessons can be learned for all people in all aspects of healthcare as value-based care and ACOs continue to grow and expand. Um, So the goal of the podcast is really to get you smart about value-based care and ACOs by looking closely at what we're doing here in Massachusetts. And in each episode, we'll tackle some specific obstacle that healthcare organizations are facing as they are adapting to this new value-based care world. So we'll get to hear from experts in the field uh, who are really leading organizations that are implementing this right now. Future episodes will dive into topics like how to mitigate culture clashes or how to leverage data with Christina Severin from C3. Um, We'll look at sharing population health management strategies with our physician expert, Dr. Navada Moda. Um, And you'd be really excited to hear about some of the other people that we have um, lined up for interviews. So basically this podcast will provide anyone who's curious about ACOs or is working on some value-based care arrangement with you know, tips, ideas, strategies um, that they need to unlock accountable care in their own organization. So today, we're going to be kicking off the podcast by speaking with Dr. John McDonough for a conversation where we'll dive deeper into how we got into this current model of value-based care in Massachusetts in the Medicaid system, and we'll talk more specifically about what makes this MassHealth ACO model unique from other models that are similar to it. I can't wait to hear John's perspective on all this. Let's jump right into your conversation with him. Great. So we are thrilled to be sitting down with Dr. John McDonough. John is a professor of public health practice in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and he also directs the Center for Executive and Continuing Professional Education there. Dr. McDonough has spent the last 30 years plus leading health reform at the local and national levels. He's a well-known name for anyone in the health reform area, really. He served as a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives from 1985 to 97, where he co-chaired the Joint Committee on Healthcare. From 2003 to 08, he served as Executive Director of Healthcare for All, an organization that's well-known in Massachusetts as a key player in crafting, passing, and implementing the landmark 2006 health reform law, which we'll get more into in a moment. And then between 2008 and 2010, John served as Senior Advisor on National Health Reform to the U.S. Senate, where he worked on the development and passage of the Affordable Care Act. So, John, thank you so much for taking a few minutes out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. Um, Essentially, this podcast series will explore one of Massachusetts' more recent health reform moves with the Section 1115 waiver to change the way that Medicaid program is structured and paid for. But before we dive into those topics for the rest of the podcast series, we'd like to take time during this inaugural podcast episode to explore how we got here in Massachusetts. Um, So we know that we've been pushing health reform for, you know, decades, um, and you've been right in the middle of it all during that whole time. So we're hoping you could spend a few minutes to talk about that landmark 2006 Massachusetts law, you know, how it came to be and what it was trying to accomplish. So in 2006, Massachusetts, when Mitt Romney was governor, passed a so-called universal health care law to try and get as close to universal coverage as possible in Massachusetts. 
in collaboration with the federal government, which provides a huge amount of the financing and the legal authority. It didn't come sui generis, out of nothing. It has a history, and the history goes back really to the 1970s, but especially the 1980s and 90s. Various efforts, some successful, some unsuccessful, to control costs, to expand access, and to improve the quality of care and other kinds of important needs in the healthcare system. So the 2006 law created some of the essential structures that you can see reflected in the Affordable Care Act, National Health Reform, Obamacare, that passed in 2010. But the key thing that the 2006 law did was to create new structures to help most people in the state who couldn't get health insurance to be able to either obtain it for free or to pay for it, and that's depending on your income. The higher up your income, the more you have to pay. It was tied to the first individual mandate to buy health insurance in the country, and it also created the first what's known as a health insurance exchange or a health insurance marketplace, which is a website that people can go to to buy health insurance. So it included all of the essential aspects that we see in the first part, Title I, of the ACA. And it was successful quickly. So we got our uninsurance rate down from about 7% down to between two and three percent within the first two years of the program and it has pretty much stayed there since and so it had a dramatic reduction and it provided then a pathway people in washington dc in 2008 and 9 said well massachusetts has finally created a model that seems to work seems to operate effectively, and importantly is supported by Republicans and Democrats. So it was the substantive model, and it was also very much the political impact in it being demonstrably bipartisan. On the one hand, Republicans like Governor Mitt Romney, President George W. Bush supported it, and Senator Edward Kennedy, then Democratic Senator from Massachusetts, and the overwhelming Democratic majorities in the State House and State Senate all backed it. And people looked at this and said, wow, we think we've finally come up with a way to break the partisan deadlock. And it required Republicans to agree to use public money to expand coverage. And it also required Democrats to swallow this notion of an individual mandate that prior to 2009 and 10 was something that Republicans enthusiastically supported and Democrats were either suspicious of or outright opposed. That seems to have flipped. And that did a total <laughs> flip when Barack Obama in 2009 embraced the individual mandate, Republicans ran for cover and went to the other side. And Democrats got comfortable with the idea and accepted the logic that you need to have some kind of a mandate 
to make the insurance market work effectively so that everybody's in and you don't just have sick and older people. And so people accepted that. So many things came out of the 2006 law. It is called a landmark. And I think that is an accurate description of what happened. And it then also kind of set the stage in Massachusetts for what came next. Many people around the country, and even in Massachusetts, criticized the law because it only dealt with access and didn't really deal with cost or reform of the delivery system. And everyone in Massachusetts involved said, yes, that's next. We're going to get to that. We're going to make this work, do this thing, and then get to that. And so that was also then an important outcome of the law, what happened on that side. Thank you for that. And I'm really glad you mentioned the piece about the law handling access first, because we'd like to get into what has happened since to deal with uh, cost and system reform. But before we do, I'd like to ask you, looking back with 2020 hindsight, you know, is there anything that you would change about the law now that you know what you know? I believe really that the process of bringing different perspectives from across the healthcare industry Republicans and Democrats, House and Senate, D.C. and Massachusetts created a mechanism that, in hindsight, was really optimal. It really addressed the access needs. It came up with a structure. The one thing that could have been done is the Massachusetts law only provided coverage, subsidized coverage, to folks up to three times the federal poverty level, or 300%. The ACA went up to 400%, widely criticized by conservatives and opponents of the law from going too high. And today we understand you have to provide some kind of a cap and income protection going far above 400%. So if there's one thing I would change, we would have not had a cap. We would have a uh, at, at, uh, at where the affordability protections end, but we would have just kept it up there. No family should pay more than eight and a half to nine and a half percent of their household income for health insurance. And, you know, the higher up you go the income ladder, the less it matters because people have coverage. But there is, in fact, a significant population of people who are at that higher income level and are facing some exorbitant premiums and cost sharing and needs some protection as well as folks on the lower income where there's a lot more people who need that kind of assistance and support. Great. I definitely agree with you on that. So if access was the primary goal of the 2006 reform law, how then did the state take on quality and cost? Were there other initiatives outside of Chapter 224? And do you actually think Chapter 224 is working? Yes, so, so the, the, the original access law, the landmark law, passed in 2006. And the state was criticized. Why didn't you deal with cost? Why didn't you deal with delivery system reform? And they rolled up their sleeves right away. And they passed two laws, one in 2008, one in 2010, that included a potpourri of different kinds of things to they hoped would have some impact. For example, they passed a... Uh, a ban on uh, pharmaceutical companies providing payments to physicians for prescribing drugs or buying them lunches or dinners or those kinds of things. Ultimately, 
that got repealed after a few years. But so a lot of different things, searching for what was the right formula. In 2012, they passed then a, a second landmark law called Chapter 224, which really did create a serious effort to try to grapple with cost and quality. The important pieces for that were they set a benchmark for the total growth of healthcare costs in the state, and they set it close to the growth of the overall economy. And so the notion is that if, if uh, costs go above the benchmark, then there's a public process that's pursued, the different players are brought in, there's identification of who's more responsible for it, and some then concerted attempt. It was criticized because it was not, there were no mandatory penalties that took effect. But the other important thing that happened was there was a creation of a new governmental institution called the Health Policy Commission, the Massachusetts HPC, that had responsibility for being the monitor in terms of the overall healthcare system. So they do annual hearings where they bring all of the key players before the Health Policy Commission to talk publicly about what's happening with costs and quality. And if the performance of the system goes above the benchmark, it's up to the HPC then to make recommendations to the governor and the legislature and others in terms of how to address the increase. Is it uh, new systemic growth that has to be addressed in some way? Sometimes there are blips in terms of the increases. So in 2014, there was a blip because of the implementation of the ACA in Massachusetts. That wasn't a systemic long-term cost driver but it was something that drove up costs in 2014. So that's something that kind of gets not taken as significant and in need of some kind of remedy. So it was the creation of the policy commission and the establishment of the benchmark. A lot of people were skeptical and didn't think this would work, that voluntary generally doesn't produce the kind of results that you want. And looking back now over six years, I think people in Massachusetts are impressed with the results and think that there's been a level of attention and seriousness. Uh, the Health Policy Commission had some real stars from the healthcare community appointed to it, and they retained some excellent staff, staff leadership, a guy named David Seltz as the executive director. And so it's working with great credibility, and it is, in fact, a system monitor when Partners Healthcare, our big healthcare conglomerate of Mass General, Brigham and Women's and others, wanted to buy hospitals on the South Shore and north of Boston, the Hallmark system. Um, it looked like it was going to go through. The Health Policy Commission came up with a report said this is going to lead to significant adverse impact on costs and it led to the failure of those acquisitions. And so if we had not had the Health Policy Commission, I would bet money those mergers probably would have happened and would have gone through. Yeah. So it's been significant and important and positive. It hasn't changed the world. We're still a high-cost state, although over the past half decade, we've seen the rate of growth in Massachusetts moderate in comparison to the rest of the country. Is that because of the commission? Is that just the normal variation? 
I think it's too soon to tell, but I wouldn't be surprised if it has had some positive impact. So it's an ongoing story. I, I tell my students, you know, you study all these things like there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the thing to understand is there is no end. It just keeps going and going. And then, you know, you die and it goes on without you. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's like, you know, the people who wrote Medicare and Medicaid, they're all six feet under now, you know, but Medicare and Medicaid live on and continue to evolve. That's a, these are living, breathing organisms. And so it's just, that's why for people like me, it's just so fascinating to study it and pay attention because there's so much there. It's never boring. I'm never Agreed. bored. Yeah, neither are we. <laughs> um, so I'd like to switch gears for a moment to federal health care reform. Can you tell us a bit about your involvement in the crafting of the Affordable Care Act? And in your opinion, did the parts of it that were based on Massachusetts reform improve upon it? So I worked between 2008 into 2010 on the U.S. Senate's Health, Education, Labor, Pension Committee, one of the two committees that crafted the ACA. So I got to see the development of it from the inside. Um, there were pieces in the ACA that represented real improvements mm -hmm. in what we had in Massachusetts. Uh, there were some things that were not as good as what we did in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts did its best to adapt so that we took in the positive elements of the ACA and kept the things that we had. So the affordability standards for what a family had to pay in premiums were far better in the Massachusetts law than the ACA. So when we were implementing the ACA in Massachusetts, the legislature looked at what was going to happen and saw there was going to be a big drop in affordability. And so the state legislature, I give them a lot of credit for this, and the Governor Deval Patrick said, we want to put money on the table and pay to maintain the affordability levels in Massachusetts that they were prior to the ACA, and they've continued to do that. And I think ultimately, in hindsight, that was far more important than the continuation or not of the individual mandate in the law. It turns out I think affordability matters much, much more than the mandate. If the coverage is genuinely affordable, you don't have to worry about people signing up. The problem is getting people to sign up when, in fact, it's not genuinely affordable and you're asking them to fork over too much. So there are things, and, and plus the other thing to remember is that the Affordable Care Act, it has 10 major sections or 10 titles of the law. And Title I is about private health insurance. And Title I is significantly based on what we did in Massachusetts. The other nine titles are different parts of addressing issues in the system that had nothing to do with what we did in Massachusetts. So when people say the ACA was based upon Massachusetts, it's true as regards Title I of the ACA and untrue for the other nine titles. So there's so much more that was done in the ACA. Good, not so good, and indifferent. I'd love to unpack the rest of the ACA with you, but I guess we'll have to save that for our next podcast series. Um, for now, let's move on to value-based care, value-based payment, um, which are being pushed right now as the future of healthcare in this country um, in a lot of different ways. Do you agree with that? And if so, what types of value-based payment and or care do you think are most promising? So this has been 
a compelling journey since it kicked off with the signing of the ACA in 2010. There's a widely shared diagnosis that fee-for-service payment on which U.S. healthcare was based prior to the ACA is inefficient and gives poor results. It rewards providers for how much they do, not how well they do. And so the notion is to move instead toward value-based care where providers are held accountable for the quality, efficiency, and effectiveness of the care that they provide and that they will do better under value-based care when they do the right thing by their patients and by society. That's the theory. There's a third option. There's a third way to do this, and it is price controls. Um, and in the United States in this era, we don't really have the political will for price controls. So versus doing nothing and keeping with fee-for-service or doing something value-based care versus price controls, value-based care seems to be a politically viable option that actually does, believe it or not, have support from Republicans and Democrats in D.C. and elsewhere around the country. Now, there are several different forms of value-based care. One of the most prominent is known as ACOs, Accountable Care Organizations, where provider groups, hospitals, physicians, home health, post-acute, get together, form an ACO, and then accept groups of patients from commercial insurers, from government like Medicare or Medicaid, and then gets paid a per person, a capitated payment for those enrollees, and then is taking risk, taking responsibility for that population. ACOs is probably the most prominent of the value-based delivery reforms in the ACA. And there right now are more than 1,000 ACOs around the country in Medicare, increasingly in Medicaid, and also in commercial insurance. And the track record on ACOs so far is mixed at best. There are some star performers, actually one of the biggest stars started 10 years ago in Massachusetts. Our Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance plan started what they called their alternative quality contract, AQC, which is really an early version of an ACO. And that seems to have had some significantly positive results on cost and on quality. In the Medicare program, which was the big demo launched by the ACA, there were some standout stars, and there's a lot of mediocrity and folks who have very little to show for their work. And so some people are declaring the ACO experiment a failure. The question is, how much patience do we have to have? There's, and and that's, there's, there's no answer to that question, at least at this point. There are other value-based reforms. There's something called bundled payment, where you take a procedure like a hip replacement or a knee replacement, and the physicians, the hospital, the post-acute rehab people all are part of getting a single payment from the Medicare program for that episode of care in hopes that it drives better value and better attention to giving the best care in an efficient way. That 
is a vigorous demonstration going on all over the country. Lots of providers are actually quite enthusiastic about that. There was a big study that came out last fall from the Lewin Consulting Group that found the overall national savings to be mediocre. So, and there are others. So there's a whole family of these kinds of things. And right now, it's hard to look at it and point to any startling success in it. But the challenge, of course, is if you want to say, okay, this failed. The question is, you know, how long, how much patience do we need to have? But it's also just as important. So, okay, let's say we abandon that. What do you want to do in its place? Do you want to go back to fee-for-service? I don't hear anybody saying that. Do you want to go to price controls? I don't hear much of anybody pretty much saying that who carries any weight in terms of where the system is going. So at least for the time being, we are on this value-based track. It's going to continue. We're learning a ton. We're learning so much, good, bad, indifferent. And it's going to continue, and this is where we are until society moves in a different direction in terms of how people want to proceed. ACOs are actually popping up now elsewhere around the globe in England, in Spain, in Singapore. Other countries are deeply interested in this model because every society, even though they're spending so much less than the United States, is dealing with their own forms of cost pressures and trying to figure out what's a smart way to try to improve their system by getting better value, meaning less cost and better quality and efficiency. And so we're all working on that, and it's going on in a very vigorous way, and it's far too early to render any conclusive judgments about where this is leading us, even though we're six to seven years into it. Right, yeah. Um all right. So what do you think are the biggest barriers to shifting away from volume and towards value? I think you mentioned a couple before, but do you have anything else to well, add to it? So it's, it's, it's significantly about culture and about the culture of the medical care community. And I, 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 my favorite definition for the word culture is the way we do things around here. That's what culture means. And so in understanding that definition explains why it's so hard. One of the hardest things to do is to change culture because culture means you've, you're, you're used to doing things a certain way and now someone comes along and says you have to do them differently. And people hate change, particularly when it's uncomfortable, when it requires them to do new things that they're not used to. And we're asking physicians and hospitals to assume responsibility or the health not just of individual patients, but of populations of patients. And that's a really new thing. They don't feel like they know it. They're scared. They are financially vulnerable if it goes awry. And so it's, it's a big learning curve, uh, which, is, which is one of the reasons why it's turned out to be more of a difficult transition than I think people had hoped it would be but people are learning, and there's an immense amount of creativity and energy that is evident across the healthcare system that is doing things in different and exciting ways. And so I guess my, you know, my judgment is that, that it's, 
it's much harder than we thought it would be, but and we should have known it would be harder. But if you know, if if you if you know how difficult something is going to be when you start, then chances are you'll never do it. And that's just true. I find in life, you know, if I I, I ran for public office, state rep in 1984 from Jamaica Plain in Boston. And, you know, I think if I ever knew what it was really going to take, I never would have done it. But, you know, then there's the sunk cost. You're in it and you're in it and you go ahead. And that's where we are right now on this. It's really hard. It's much more difficult. And we don't have much other choice. And we've invested so much in trying to make this go that we really owe it to society and to ourselves to see how far we can take this and see where we end up. And we'll find surprises along the way, pleasant surprises and unpleasant surprises. But at least for the time being, we've got to do our best to try to make this work as much as we can. That's a positive answer. <laughs> All right, final question. What next steps do you think Massachusetts should take to achieve what we like to think of as the unicorn of healthier people, lower costs, and more satisfied patients and healthcare workers? So I think Massachusetts is doing something really important right now, and it is this demonstration that started in March of this year to create accountable care organizations inside the mass health system. So on March 1st, about 830,000 mass health enrollees were transferred from their insurance plans, their Medicaid insurance plans, to one of 17 ACOs distributed around the state, people were assigned to an ACO based upon their primary care physician and put into that ACO. And till the end of June, they were able to switch plans. Now they can do it every year, but now people are in there for a year. And it is a serious attempt to try to do something that people have said for years they want to do, which is to integrate physical regular medical care with behavioral health, with long-term services, and with community systems of care. And because Medicaid is such a cheap payer, there's not that much room to play around with fiddling with rates. Right. And so if these things are going to succeed, they are going to succeed because these ACOs and some of them will fail and some of them will succeed, are really able to get at what is sometimes referred to as the social determinants of care. And by that we mean, you know, medical care has some part of keeping you healthy or making you healthy. But actually what's far more important than medical care is your housing, your environment, your personal habits of diet and exercise, how clean the air is around you and stuff. And so getting at those kinds of things is really critical to keeping people healthy and thus lowering costs. And I just, you know, give an example of that. One of the ways that in the U.S. we really are in terrible shape is uh, obesity and overweight. So it's unbelievable. Seventy percent of American adults are overweight or obese. Seventy percent. Yikes. And then you look at other kinds of data and other stats on our system. One of the things that stands out to me is among advanced nations, we have the highest rate of maternal mortality. Yeah. Mothers dying in childbirth. 
And one of the things I learned recently for some research is one of the reasons our maternal mortality rate is so high is because we have so much obesity. There's a direct connection between obesity and maternal mortality. And so part of the challenge then for these Medicaid ACOs is to figure out how to get at these really thorny, difficult, complex issues that aren't about just you know giving people more CAT scans or giving them different pills or something like that. It's really about trying to create this integration between what's going on in the community and then the role of the medical care system. And that's exactly from what I see, what this ACO demonstration is about, which is why if you say, you know, where should the state be going? I'd say, I think right now they're down that road. Yeah. And, and it started and it's really robust. And, you know, there's people who are unhappy with some of the changes and switches. And I think the state is doing their best to try to address people's individual concerns and put them in the best place. But in terms of just trying to do the right thing, and do it as well as possible, I, I can't think of a better, more important priority than what we're already underway with right now. Dr. McDonough, thank you so much for joining us today. We're thrilled that you were able to take the time. Uh, we know your time is precious. We really believe that we're at the beginning of something big here in Massachusetts, and hopefully it can inform other states along this journey. Wow, Sarah, so great to hear from someone who has such depth of experience working in this field. And like he said, one day we'll all be dead and the healthcare system will continue to evolve and change without us. So what are the key takeaways we need to be thinking about as we push value-based care in the future of healthcare? Well, John talked about the importance of culture in changing the way we deliver care as healthcare organizations, which we have certainly seen firsthand in our work on ACO projects here in Massachusetts and elsewhere. John also mentioned that success in value-based care isn't guaranteed, um, as many ACOs have failed or pulled out of different federal programs. He also said that addressing social determinants of health is a critical part of this new program in Massachusetts. Uh, he did mention that without being able to use price controls or move to a single-payer system, you know, value-based payment methods really are, at least for now, the way that we are heading. So I think what we'd like to remember is that achieving the triple aim is complex and moving towards value-based care is hard. Uh, so in future episodes, we'd like to unpack different issues and topics that will hopefully help our audience get smarter on value-based care at a high level, as well as how to actually implement these things on the ground. That's great, Sarah. I can't wait to tap into the expertise we're going to have on the show in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for joining us today, and be sure to tune into our next installment of Unlocking Accountable Care. If you are interested in learning more about accountable care or how organizations can succeed in today's healthcare system, please visit our website, www.dayhealthstrategies.com, check out our blog, follow us on Twitter, and join our mailing list. We regularly post content relevant to current healthcare issues and overcoming challenges in delivering value-based care. Unlocking Accountable Care is a production of Day Health Strategies. Direction and editing by Max Blumenthal. Additional support and research by Emily Eibel and Nico Lehman. Our producer is Rosemary Day. Special thanks to Purple Planet Music for the use of their songs. 